John chapter 8. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And then Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet.
Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, let me begin with uh, simply a a sentence or two. And if you want to chase this up, you can uh, talk to me afterwards. A sentence or two on why it is that I'm going to preach on Luke 7. Uh, this evening and use John 8 as an illustration rather than preach on John 8. And the answer is there in uh, John 8 on page 1073, just underneath the bar if you're using the Bibles that the church provides. The earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 753 to 811. Uh, And that is uh, true. It's not in John's gospel for the first few hundred years. Um, It is almost certainly a true story. It is almost certainly a true story. This story was held by the early church very early. It was discussed by the early church. It was passed on. It was held in oral tradition by the early church. It fits very well with things that Jesus said elsewhere, for instance, Luke 7 and elsewhere. Uh, But the jury is very much out as to whether it was in John's gospel originally and is part of John's gospel. The jury's out. And so to be cautious, to be on the safe side, I'm going to preach from Luke 7 because much the same truths are preached in Luke 7 and use John 8 as an illustration uh, rather than preach from uh, John 8 itself. As I say, if you want to pick that up with me afterwards, uh, you're more than welcome. So we're in Luke 7, uh, 36 uh, to 50. That's page 1036. Uh, As I say, we're much the same themes as you see in John 8 uh, play out again. Let's pray. So, Father, as we uh, come to you as your people, as we gather around the throne of grace, uh, mindful that you are with us now by your Spirit, uh, we pray for him to open our ears, to open our hearts, to open our eyes, that we might see afresh the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this, Father, that he would capture our hearts this evening, capture them afresh, uh, that he might thereby capture our lives. And we pray it in his great name. Amen. Nothing liberates um, a life like grace, in particular, the grace of forgiveness. Nothing is as life-changing as knowing, as experiencing the uh, life-changing grace of God, not guilt, not obligation, uh, not willpower, not fear, not anxiety. All those things may well change your life, uh, but I want to suggest that any change they make will be superficial and probably temporary. Uh, Such change is dragged out of you, but only grace will draw change out of you. Nothing changes uh, a life, nothing liberates a life like the grace of knowing your sins to be forgiven. And the reason for that, it seems to me, is because nothing turns the heart towards the God of new life than His grace does. Nothing turns the heart towards the God of new life than grace. 
If you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've seen something of the grace of God revealed in his Son, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've gone through John's Gospel. If you're with us in John 4, for instance, you will have discovered in the Lord Jesus Christ a God who seeks out the sinful and the shamed in order to take their sin and shame away from them and upon himself. Uh, The one who delights to offer the replacement of an old life of sin and shame with a new life of splendor. It's what the Lord delights to do. He is gracious. And when you taste that grace, when you know that forgiveness, it changes you. It liberates a new life of love towards God and towards others. Those who have been forgiven much love much. We see that spelled out in the story that Jesus tells Simon, don't we, in Luke 7. Simon, Jesus says, you might want to have a look down at it, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he says. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. We see that spelled out. And then we see it played out, don't we? We see it played out positively in the actions of the sinful woman in Luke 7. Uh, Someone who has clearly, as we discover at the end of the story, discovered grace, is living out of grace. And we see it played out negatively in the response of Simon, in his response towards Jesus, in his response towards the sinful woman. Have a look how it continues. Then Jesus turns towards the woman and says to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. This woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. She has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Do you see? Her love is evidence of sins forgiven. It's not earning forgiveness of sins. It's evidence. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. That's the point, isn't it? Whatever, whoever has our hearts has our lives. It is forgiveness, knowledge of forgiveness, that advances the kingdom of God in us and through us, unlike anything else. I want to see how that plays out a little bit this evening. First, I want us to look at this briefly. I want us to see how grace is liberating. Next slide. Thank you, Andrew. How it enables us to love in new ways. We love God in new ways. We love others in new ways. Let's start, in fact, with others. Just compare. Just have a look down at Luke 7. Think about, think about the story. Compare Simon with this uh, woman. Notice how in Simon we see that superiority that so often marks out the self-righteous. Looks down on the woman. Uh, keeps himself separate from the woman and is bemused. In fact, more than that, he's scandalized by the Lord Jesus Christ. If this man were a prophet, open brackets, and he clearly isn't, because of the way he's relating to this sinful woman. If he was a prophet, he'd have nothing to do with this woman. He'd know exactly what kind of woman she was, and knowing what kind of woman she was, he'd have absolutely nothing 
to do with her. He'd separate himself from her in exactly the same way as I'm separating myself from her. Self-righteous are always carrying stones in their pockets, John 8, just ready to fling towards those they believe to be morally inferior. Self-righteous love to drag people into the courts of personal and public opinion because it makes them look good. And that is the ball game for the self-righteous. Tim Chester, who's written a great little book called You Can Change, says this, superiority is such a common characteristic of people who do not get grace. We tend to be proud, conceited, superior, smug, arrogant. We look down on others. We enjoy the failure of others. We gossip about the shortcomings of others. We exaggerate their faults. And we exaggerate our own successes because we want to prove ourselves. And the standard we set is the people around us, of course. And the question is, do I see that in myself? Do I see that in myself? I do. I read the newspaper, watch the news, watch the news on TV. Do I see myself just thinking, oh, not as bad as that? It's been well said that the quality of your love for God can be measured by the love you have for others. That's right. I'd want to add this, that the quality of your love for others is an excellent measure of the extent to which you know yourself to be loved by God. The extent to which you know yourself to be loved by God. Grace is liberating. It it liberates us to love in new ways. It liberates us to love others in new ways because, of course, grace cuts superiority off at its source. If you get grace, you realize there is no grounds for and no need for any form of comparison with other people. It cuts superiority off at its source. It allows you, frees you, liberates you to love others, to love all in new ways. Notice how the difference, how they love God as well, how they love Jesus. God revealed as Savior. Simon responds towards Jesus coolly and distantly. He shows no overt love. He shows some respect, some, but not much more basic courtesies, and that's about it. When Jesus challenges Simon uh, and his uh, religion, his self-righteousness, when he begins to cast doubt on Simon's ability to earn God's uh, acceptance and therefore the worth of a religious life in that sense, Simon uh, becomes very cool towards Jesus in the story. And you contrast that with the woman who has discovered uh, forgiveness, who has discovered grace. She responds exuberantly towards this saviour who has sought her and forgiven her. She responds lovingly, expensively with this perfume, devotedly. She's grateful, she's joyful, not embarrassed about coming into this place and pouring this out upon him and breaking various social taboos of the time because she just wants to respond. She's just driven by love for this saviour. So grace is liberating. It uh, allows us, or it, uh, I should say, liberating. We're able, enabled to love in new ways. But secondly, I want us to think, next slide, thank you, Andrew. <clears throat> Grace is also life-changing. So it's liberating. We love in new ways. But it's also life-changing. We live in new ways. As I want to think about that, there are three areas in which Grace, I think, changes us. <clears throat> and the first is this. Grace coaxes us out of hiding. We've talked a little bit about this in John 3 and John 4. It coaxes us out of hiding. You see, grace is good news, as we said when we looked in John 3. It's good news, but it's not easy news. 
to experience the healing power of grace, we must first humbly expose our sin. No one goes to see a doctor until they admit they're ill. No one experiences the healing of medicine until they expose their frailty. So it is with the healing, life-changing power of God's grace. And of course, this is what Jesus is desperately trying to do with Simon and in John 8 with the, uh, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, isn't he? He's trying to get them to admit that they're ill so that they can experience his grace. That's why he tells Simon the story that he does. Both people owe a debt. One only owes whatever it is, 50. The other owes 500, sure. But the point is, they're both in debt and they're both unable to pay it. That's why Jesus compares uh, the response of Simon towards Jesus with the response of the woman towards Jesus. He's saying, isn't he, Simon, look how cold you are. Look how cold you've become. Look how hard your heart is. You're ill spiritually. Same thing going on in John 8, isn't it? What do you think Jesus is doing when he says to them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone? Pregnant pause. There's no place for religious self-righteousness. You're ill. He's desperately trying to rescue them from self-righteousness, the self-righteousness that leads to death. Open their eyes to their need of grace. That leads to life. And you see, it is grace that will help them to do that. When I see that everything that I'm hiding is known to God, whatever debt that might be, everything that I'm hiding, when I see that it is known to God but can be covered by the cross, that frees me to be honest, doesn't it? That's how the Christian life begins, doesn't it? When I see Christ come to me, when I see Christ come for me, when I see Christ go to the cross and delight to take my sin and shame upon himself and remove my sin and shame as far as the east is from the west, then why why hide? Why hide it? Grace coaxes us out. That's how the Christian life begins. That's how the Christian life continues. How the Christian life grows in us as we're increasingly, as we grasp grace, we're increasingly free to continue to be honest about what it is that God still needs to change in our lives. Grace enables you to face truths about yourself that you would normally perhaps hesitate to consider. Uh, One writer, Paul Tripp, uh, who's an American uh, pastor, says this, Grace calls you out of hiding. Hiding your sin or trying to cover up or making excuses or blaming others or minimizing things. When you do those things, we show that we don't really grasp grace because we're still trying to hide behind a good reputation of self-worth and spirituality. If we get really embarrassed when someone finds out we've messed up, we haven't got grace. We haven't grasped it. If we come to church and we feel like we have to act like the perfect person, we haven't grasped grace. Grace would enable us to face truths about ourselves that we have hitherto hesitated to consider. See, religious, the self-righteous, they have to minimize those things, don't they? Have to conceal those things. Those things are all the things that are going to stop God from forgiving them. So they, they minimize them. Grace says, no, I've seen it. I've seen it. 
I've come for it. I've died for it. How much emotional damage is done by walking around carrying huge closets of skeletons? Grace opens the closet door. I've seen it. I've dealt with it. There's grace for that. Come and get it. So we can allow ourselves to see it too. Not just shut the closet door. We can allow us to open it up. Take a look at ourselves. Take a look at our hearts. Bring it into God's light because we know God has seen it. And we know he is delighted to take it upon himself and to take it far from us. When we hide our sin, friends, when we don't face it, when we close the door on it, pretend it didn't happen or pretend it wasn't our fault or we make, make it a small matter, what we're saying, I think, is that we're setting the bar really low on God's graciousness, aren't we? We're, we're actually making his salvation a really small thing. We're making the cross a really weak thing. We couldn't have died for that. That's too big. That's too significant. That's too X, Y, Z for the cross to be able to deal with. God is more gracious than that. Grace frees us to bring areas that need change into God's presence, and that is the only arena of lasting change. Grace frees us to bring that which needs changing into God's light. But it also is the thing that does the changing. That's the second point. Thank you, Andrew. Grace captures our hearts. And this is what does the changing. See, when we gaze upon the gracious beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I hope as you're reading through John's Gospel, you're doing that. Not just reading it for words and for understanding and for facts, but you're allowing the Lord Jesus Christ, John 1, who comes full of grace and truth to become beautiful in your eyes. You're meditating on these words such that you see the graciousness of Christ and his truthfulness, and you're allowing him to become beautiful to you. See, as he does that, he captures our hearts. That's the end of Bible reading, meditation, preaching, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever has our hearts has our lives. See, as we read through John's Gospel or whatever it might be and we look at the Lord Jesus, as we look at the one who sought the sinful and the shamed, as we look at the one who stepped down from heaven to earth and made himself flesh and therefore made himself frail and vulnerable and beatable, crucifiable, as we see the one who went from the earth to a cross for our sakes, wins our hearts and thereby our lives. Why wouldn't we submit in obedience to this man? Why wouldn't we submit our lives to this king who submitted his life for our sakes? I love this little phrase, this little, I don't know what it is, a verse from a hymn or a verse from a, a poem. Next to, um, slide, thank you, Andrew. John Newton, who I've mentioned a few times over the last few uh, weeks, you know, the, um, the, the slave trader who uh, came to the Lord Jesus Christ and wrote the wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. He wrote this. It may be a little bit small. Let me read it to you. It's, it, it, it's, it's everything I want to say. He says this, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. You see? Isn't that beautiful? Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before. 
We had pleasure, the things we like to do. And then sometimes when you heard the gospel, when you heard Christian teaching, you had ethics, ugh, which was duty and chore and all joyless duty. And we were the older brothers. But when you see his beauty, when you see all that he is to us and for us, when he wins our hearts, when we hear his pardoning voice, we cease to be the older brother, we cease to be a slave, we become a child, duty becomes choice. That's how true Christian holiness is born, when holiness becomes our greatest pleasure. Works like this, next slide. Don't know what happened with the circle. I tried to make the front a bit bigger and I lost the circle, but it is a circle. It starts with seeing God. This is the way it works. You see God. And when we see something about his graciousness, as we look at the Lord God revealed in, for instance, John's gospel, we delight in him because he's beautiful and he's gracious and we see the way he treats us and we see the way he treats people and we see the way he's always honest and has an extraordinary integrity and we see the way he reaches out to the weak and the poor and he touches the untouchables. And story after story after story, we meditate on these things and he becomes increasingly delightful to us. And as he becomes increasingly delightful to us, so we desire him to be like him. We recognize ourselves to be sons and daughters of him and we want to be like dad. We desire him. And then, of course, we start to desire him and all he is for us more than the promises of sin and temptation. And when that happens, holiness is a choice, not a duty. It's our pleasure. We live God's way because we want to live God's way, because it's a beautiful way and he has captured our hearts. That is the road to holiness. And then, of course, that leads to obedience. And, of course, the more obedient we are, what? The more we see God as we read the Scriptures and pray. The more we're sort of spiritually enabled to see Him. And so it becomes a virtuous circle, too. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying suddenly this, you know, read the Bible, find Christ beautiful, and suddenly holiness becomes easy. It'll be hard at times. It's a battle at times, absolutely. But this is the road. So let Christ win our affections. Simon, you see, how's Simon going to spend his life? He's going to spend his life trying to change himself, trying to serve God with the words, I can't do X, and I mustn't do Y. He's going to live life before a schoolmaster. The woman, she's going to spend her life empowered by grace to say things like, I need not do X. I don't have to do Y because my God is bigger My God is better. What he promises me is bigger. What he promises me is greater than whatever this particular sin or this temptation is. She'll live life before a bridegroom who she loves. Grace captures our hearts. That's the way it changes us. Thirdly, grace conveys peace. Do you see both stories end exactly the same way? Well, not exactly the same way, but very similar way. Luke, your sins are forgiven. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. At some point in the past, before this incident, clearly they'd met and uh, uh, she had been forgiven, put her faith in Jesus. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And how does John 8 finish? I don't condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Do you see the pattern? The pattern is the same, isn't it? In other words, verdict, then performance. That's the way of Christianity. 
Next slide. Thank you, uh, Andrew. Verdict, you are forgiven or no condemnation, leads to go in peace. Go and lead a new life. Go and sin no more. You see? Exact opposite of religion, isn't it? Exact opposite of self-righteousness. In that, moral effort and obedience leads to the verdict, you hope. Moral effort, obedience may or may not lead to forgiveness on the day of judgment, acquittal. And if you go down that road, of course, life is all performance anxiety, isn't it? Have I done enough? Am I better than enough people? Where's where's the line going to be on judgment day? It's all performance anxiety. Not with grace. (laughs) With grace, you get the verdict. You're forgiven. And life is lived out of that. Tim Keller puts it like this. Do you realize that it's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ you get the verdict before the performance? The verdict is in. And now I perform on the basis of the verdict. Because he loves me and he accepts me. I don't have to do things to build up my resume. I don't have to do things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. Makes all the difference in the world. Now don't mishear me, friends. Grace changes us. It does demand change. It does demand change. But as a natural consequence, do you see? Not as a condition. Grace turns your life upside down. Upside down. Takes away the old life. Gives you a new life to lead. Never leaves us where it finds us. I read this in an article on this, I forget exactly where. I thought it was very helpful. There's no such thing as a person who receives the saving grace of God and is unchanged. Grace always turns our lives upside down. It changes what you love, changes what you live for, changes how you view yourself and God and everyone around you. That's right, isn't it? God in his grace meets us where we are. It saves us as we are, but it never leaves us where we are. He leads us on to experience the joy of becoming like him of growing in Christ-likeness, of becoming holy. That's what grace does. It's a point I think is often missed in some of the contemporary ethical debates at the moment. Yes, God saves us where we are, but he never leaves us where we are. Grace turns our lives upside down and gives us a whole new life to lead. And yet at the same time, nothing brings rest, peace, more than grace. When we stand before God and we know ourselves to be perfectly righteous in his sight, fully forgiven, acquitted because of the Lord Jesus, there is a peace there that is greater than all things. The question for us as we close then is this. Are we living, are we working from God's love or for God's love? Are we working from God's love or are we working for God's love? Have we grasped grace? Are we being changed by grace? Do we still find ourselves sometimes thinking, I forgot my quiet time this morning. Things are not going to go well for me today. It's a sign that we're not really living out of grace. Or perhaps sometimes the other way around. I've been praying really hard working really hard, leading Bible study, and yet I've prayed and prayed for X, and X hasn't happened. And we get angry about it, because we think, actually, I've done X, therefore, God, you owe me. 
not living out of grace. It's easy to fall back into self-righteousness and religion, to think that we must take the initiative to win God's love. Or if I do something special, God will love me more, or he'll, he'll owe me. I'll tell you, friends, that'll only choke our Christian life. That'll choke it. And it'll stop us being a conduit of grace to others. Sinful woman in uh, Luke 7 has experienced the love of Jesus poured out upon her in forgiveness, and she responds how? By pouring out her life and love at his feet. That that, that is the way of true life-giving Christian living and holiness. That is the way of liberation and transformation to experience God's grace and to live it out in response. God initiates. We respond. Or as uh, John puts it in his letters, we love God. We love God above sin. We love God above others because he first loved us. He was gracious to us. And that liberates us to love in new ways, changes our life so that we can live in new ways. We change insofar as we allow ourselves to be captured by the gracious beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, my prayer is, may he give us all a fresh vision of himself in this Lenten season. Amen.